Last summer, I broke my humerus. I was stupidly trying to outride one of my super athletic colleagues mountain biking when I fell off my bike in a sort of Superman position off the front of my bike, landed on my right side with my shoulder fully flexed forward, and then couldn't move my shoulder. I had a three-part fracture, a surgical neck fracture and a fracture that took the greater tuberosity right off the humeral head. At the time, I thought, okay, it takes about eight weeks for the fracture to heal and then a few weeks of physio and I'll be back to mountain biking. Well, I'm now seven months out and I just finished physio. I was doing 30 minutes of exercises every day for seven months. I haven't gotten back to mountain biking yet and still I have pain sometimes. Now, the reason I'm telling you about this So the reason I'm telling you about this is because I think it's really important for us to tell our patients what to expect in terms of recovery from these injuries and to explain to them that it requires serious dedication to daily exercises for good outcomes. In this part two of shoulder injuries, commonly missed and mismanaged shoulder injuries, we're first going to cover proximal humerus fractures and then get deep into the list of occult shoulder injuries, the injuries that have apparently normal looking x-rays. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast with your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. We're going to start off with Dr. Dancer explaining a bit why it takes so long for proximal humerus fractures to heal, like in my case, and why surgery is often no better than conservative management. It's not that common that we operate on these injuries but that isn't an endorsement that this is an easy injury. It's more of a condemnation about the generally poor results from surgical treatment. So in that way, it's actually much different than most other areas of the body. You know, we can accomplish really terrific results. We fix ankle fractures, wrist fractures all the time. Those treatments work. Surgical treatment for the proximal humerus is not like that. What is it about proximal humerus fractures and shoulder injuries in general that make it such a difficult, long process compared to, say, most ankle fractures, which will heal in a couple of months? I usually tell patients, for most shoulder injuries, that would include fractures, post-op patients. I tell them that about 90% of the recovery happens in the first three to four months after the injury, and then the remaining 10% can take six months or longer to achieve. When it comes to surgical treatment, it's not really for reasons that we fully understand, but our surgical outcomes with proximal humerus fractures aren't great. And the outcomes from the non-surgical treatments are surprisingly good comparatively. So when you actually run the risk analysis on this, surgery doesn't clearly win like it does for a lot of other areas. So we treat a lot of these non-surgically, and that actually may be a different practice pattern to a lot of your audience, because I'm aware that there's a lot of surgery that happens elsewhere in the world. There have been studies on the billing data in our provincial health registries showing a high proportion of non-surgical treatment for these injuries. And that's a pattern that's different from a lot of other places in the world, like some of our near neighbors. All right. So that that's actually pretty interesting. There's going to be different practice patterns depending on where you live. And it sounds like in the States, they're more aggressive about doing surgery for, for proximal humerus fractures than they are in Canada. 
suffice to say that the outcomes haven't been shown in the literature to be any better for most of these fractures. And we can get into exactly which ones do require surgery in a little bit. We see lots of proximal humerus fractures, and I don't really have a good sense in my head of how to categorize them. So if you could just give us a sense of like, what's a really bad humerus fracture that probably will require surgery or that will take a long time to heal versus ones that almost certainly don't require surgery. I understand there's a there's the near NEER classification. Is that something that's useful for emergency docs to know about? Often within the classifications, there may be pearls where uh, you may not need to know the entire classification, but just the key message out of it. The more fragments, the worse the fracture. That's basically the the pearl from this one. What isn't really highlighted in that classification system is the displacement of the humeral head segment. And so that tends to really influence the surgical decision-making. So you're familiar with the garden classification in the hip. A displaced subcapital fracture has a risk of avascular necrosis and it influences decision-making on what type of treatment we do. In the shoulder, displacement of the humeral head can affect vascularity as well. Also, head split fractures, which aren't part of that classification, would be another relative indication for surgery. Okay, so really three things we should be thinking of is the number of fragments, a split head, and thirdly, wide displacement of the humeral head. That gives us a general sense of the likelihood of patients requiring surgery, understanding that depending on which country you live in, they're going to be variably aggressive at doing that surgery for different kinds of injuries. One thing I've always had trouble with is trying to figure out how to immobilize a patient with a humerus fracture. So we've got four options. We've got a sling. We've got a shoulder immobilizer or a Velpo sling, they call it. We've got a collar and cuff, and we've got a sugar tongue splint. So Dr. CL, these four different immobilization techniques which one of these should we be using for which different humerus fractures? So for mid-shaft humerus, that would be the indication for the sugar tongue. So we're here talking about proximal humerus fracture, the near classification. So for proximal humerus fractures, typically what would be used is either a sling or a collar and cuff. There have been studies done that suggest a collar and cuff may be better. So from an eMERGE perspective, a broad arm sling like the, like the one that you'd see, like a triangular slings or the commercial aid ones, what they do is they, they take the weight off the arm. So if you have a clavicle fracture, taking the weight of the arm off feels better. If you have an AC separation, taking the weight of the arm off feels better. Uh, if you have an impacted proximal humerus fracture, gravity is a good thing to help align it. So having it pulled down may be of more value to put a collar and cuff on. Because there what happens is the, gra- the, uh, the weight of the arm is pulling down, and that may help with an impacted proximal humerus fracture. And with ligamentotaxis, right, helping to align the fragments. So for, for sometimes you want gravity in your favor, and sometimes you want gravity eliminated. If you want gravity eliminated for clavicle and AC, use a broad arm sling. If you want gravity in your favor, use a collar and cuff. Beautiful. We had talked at the top of the podcast about how we're going to go through the differential diagnosis of a shoulder injury that has normal or near-normal x-rays, the so-called occult shoulder injury. So 
Now I'd like to generate the very important list of occult shoulder injuries. Dr. CL, what are the key shoulder injuries that have normal or near normal appearing initial x-rays in the ED that we should always be on the lookout for and kind of have in the back of our heads? Well, I think the biggest issue really is making sure you don't miss a posterior dislocated shoulder. From an injury point of view, if you miss a sublux shoulder in emerge, it's not the end of the world. If you miss an AC separation that's a grade one, it's not the end of the world. If you miss a rotator cuff tear, these aren't end of the world things. You don't want to miss a septic joint. You don't want to miss compartment syndrome. That kind of stuff is clear. Um, but if there's actually an injury from an x-ray point of view, I think it's supposed to your dislocated shoulder. You want to keep it in your back of your mind. That being said, I think we should challenge ourselves to be better than just writing STI, like soft tissue injury shoulder. And you could, there are pieces of the story that tell you whether it's a AC separation or a glenohumeral subluxation or rotator cuff tear versus a rotator cuff, you know, tendonitis. There are ways that you can separate these out based on history and physical. And, and the reason to challenge yourself to do that a little bit in eMERGE is to actually just build your confidence with your clinical exam with MSK. For musculoskeletal is a big part of what we do. And if we if we ignore the the history, we ignore the physical and just go to the x-ray, that's how we miss these things when they're more serious. So I think I think the building blocks of doing a good assessment, they don't take a lot of time, but it's just important to ask. So what is the mechanism? You know, again, shoulder into the boards versus your arm out. Where does it hurt? Touch them. And sternoclavicular joint is the first joint of the upper extremity. Walk along the clavicle. You'll sometimes see patients with kids primarily, but they have an occult clavicle fracture. They look like a clavicle fracture. Their x-ray is negative. So they could certainly have that. Are they tender over their AC joint? What are confirmatory tests? If you think it's an AC separation, there's a test called a crossover sign. If you think they may have subluxed their shoulder, you can look for apprehension and relocation. And these are things we could gently do in the emergency department just to fine-tune our assessment. Again, they don't take a long time, but I think we're giving patients better advice. We're understanding what we're seeing better. We start to see the spectrum of these injuries, and they're building blocks for other MSK assessments, musculoskeletal assessments to do and emerge. All right. So if we were to come up with a list, the most important one for sure is posterior shoulder dislocation. There's glenohumeral subluxations, which we'll talk about a little bit. There's rotator cuff tears. There's AC separations, which we'll talk about. There's sternoclavicular subluxation dislocations as well. And then also to have in the back of your mind in kids is the occult clavicle fracture, which also doesn't have any huge outcome implications, but uh, it would be nice if we could actually diagnose it properly. So let's go through some of these in a little bit more detail, and we'll start with the glenohumeral subluxations. So there's glenohumeral dislocations, which we've talked about extensively, and then there's just subluxations. And the subluxations can sometimes be really challenging to pick up. What are some of the key clues for picking up glenohumeral subluxations, and how are they treated differently? So in terms of picking up, I think it's a good idea, at least to remind the listeners again, that a subluxation is a partial dislocation. So it means that there is at least some contact of the articular surfaces, whereas a dislocation, there's no contact of the articular surface. So a shoulder, someone ever tells you, I felt like my shoulder was going to slip out, and then it went back in again. That's typically a subluxation, which you can then confirm on with the apprehension test and then the relocation test if, if the apprehension test was positive. So they're at risk of going back to having a full dislocation if it's not managed properly. It can happen because of an, a traumatic injury in sport. Uh, it can happen more often in young females because of hypermobility. 
And then the treatments are a little bit different, and I'll I'll defer to Dale for for the treatments of these because this is what he sees going forward. So you mentioned the apprehension tests. Can can you just go f- through for us how you would do the apprehension test to that whole series of tests? To, sure. To diagnose. So so the typical mechanism for a dislocation of a shoulder is abduction and external rotation. So you would gently take the arm and put it in that vulnerable position. And what happens is, is if you if you do that the patient will either get a facial grimace or you'll feel their arm tighten up. So it's a passive test. You're taking the patient's arm. The patient's it's just passively being taken back there. Like we're doing it actively, but, but passive on the patient's part. And when they feel uncomfortable, the theory that we're having is, that, okay, it's a humeral head that's sliding forward. Occasionally what's happening, the pain comes because they're just stretching something else, stretching a capsule, some other muscles. Something else is being stretched. So perhaps it's not sliding forward. So this relocation test, essentially, you repeat the test, but you place a hand on the proximal humerus, preventing it from sliding forward. So you're actually preventing it from slipping out. And then you repeat the test. And if the patient can go further, if it's more comfortable, if they look less apprehensive, then our hypothesis of the humeral head must have been sliding forward is confirmed. So when you see a positive apprehension test, it's a good idea to the positive relocation test. That confirms that it was the head sliding forward. And now you say, okay, they either subluxed or, in the, at the end, dislocation of it, but it's along that spectrum. So the apprehension test and the relocation test confirms the diagnosis of a subluxed glenohumeral joint. We'll have videos in the show notes in case you're not familiar with these tests. Next, Dr. Dancer is going to tell us a bit about how to manage these patients with suspected subluxations. If somebody has symptoms of subluxation, and you can determine in which direction, you know, most commonly it would be anterior, immobilizing them for a time in the opposite of the provocative position would help their symptoms. So the danger aber position would be the provocative position with anterior subluxation. Immobilizing them with the arm right across the belly should be a safe position for that arm. And, and a lot of, they may say that it felt like it slipped out, and then I moved a little bit and went back in again. But a frank dislocation, because it slips so far out, it's harder to reduce back on their own because it's just gone out further. So if it's still hinged on the joint anteriorly, often it'll slip back. I, I, I can't tell you actually a case that I've had an emerge where I've diagnosed somebody with an anterior subluxation because the x-ray showed it was partially out. What One comment I would just make is that there's no value whatsoever in an apprehension test in a shoulder that has had a documented dislocation, you know, within a week or two. So, you know, it, it doesn't add value if you've popped a shoulder back in and then go and do a right. apprehension test. There's, there's no value in that. Good point. All right. So that's a little bit about glenohumeral subluxations. I want to talk a bit now about rotator cuff tears. Now there's rotator cuff tears and there's rotator cuff tears. There's chronic rotator cuff tears there's rotator cuff tendinitis, and there's acute rotator cuff tears. It might not matter that much in the emergency department, but I do think it is important to get a a sense of the spectrum of rotator cuff disease and try and get as close to the diagnosis as possible in the emergency department to have the patients properly followed up. So Dr. Dancer why is it important to differentiate these and how would we differentiate them in the emergency department? Let me perhaps start with making an analogy with the biceps. So there seems to be 
a lot of misconception about which kind of biceps injuries require urgent referral. So a distal biceps rupture, there's a window of opportunity for treatment that closes rapidly. And if we're going to do surgery, it's often much easier within the first three or four weeks after the injury. So getting that referral to us early, it's a relative surgical emergency. Proximal biceps, long head of biceps tears, however, there's no value to that almost at all. And so there is no window of opportunity. They almost never need an operation. There's no urgency to that. So in a similar way, with the rotator cuff, there are very few rotator cuff injuries where the window of opportunity for treatment is short. So these are really uncommonly an emergent type of referral to the orthopedic surgeon. Most of these patients, it's non-surgical treatment, and they would need to exhaust the non-surgical treatment before even thinking about any kind of surgical treatment. And therefore, there's very little reason for orthopedic surgery to become involved. So if you're, if you're very suspicious for an acute rotator cuff tear in a younger active patient, for instance, a laborer for whom getting back to work in a timely fashion is critical, sending them off for some imaging to confirm that diagnosis and a referral to the fracture clinic for early follow-up may be appropriate. With the physical exam, there's no tests that have very good accuracy, and it kind of depends on how good you are at doing the physical exam tests. Is there any way of determining clinically whether someone might have a full tear? Like, Let's say a young person comes in. Is, is there any way you could tell that they have a full tear that actually might require surgery clinically? You know, they say that there's the the drop arm test, you know, where you hold the patient's arm at 90 degrees abduction and let go. And if it just drops right to the side, then that's an indication that it might be a tear. There's the one where they're unable to in, even initiate any abduction, and that's suggestive of, of a full tear. I mean, how, how useful are these tests? Can, can you actually diagnose a full tear clinically with any degree of accuracy? I would argue not really. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so you know, when they're acutely painful, it pretty much ruins all of your clinical testing. To me, the sensitivity goes up with the number of tests that you do. And it's more about consistency. But ultimately what you're asking is, you know, can we on clinical exam detect a acute full thickness rotator cuff tear in the emergency department and distinguish that from simply a strain or a sprain. And I don't believe we can. I mean, this is my field. I'm examining shoulders all the time. And I see shoulders with full thickness tears with almost no pain and fantastic strength all the time. And shoulders without tears with drop signs and horrible pain all the time. So there's a high degree of variation and throw in a bit of pain there and all bets are off. You mentioned that, you know, the, the supraspinatus initiates uh, abduction. So if we see somebody with their arm at their side and they can abduct their arm to 45 degrees and emerge, we're like, oh, well, you can initiate abduction so you don't have a supraspinatus tear. So we feel comfortable that that's the case. But we have to be careful because abduction of the shoulder occurs both at the glenohumeral joint and scapulothoracic. And it's possible to have a complete tear of your supraspinatus and still abduct your arm throughout 45 degrees because that's scapulothoracic movement. So just because they can abduct a little bit doesn't mean they don't have a complete tear. And if they can get their arm up to 90 and over 90 degrees, they must have an intact supraspinatus because now you have some glenohumeral movement. 
So there are ways that you can dissect out a little bit. If somebody comes in because their shoulder hurts after playing tennis, you know, if they said I was going for an overhead smash at like, you know, whatever, love 30 in the second set, and then my, my, my arm hurt and they've got signs of impingement, or somebody says I was playing tennis and the next day my shoulder hurt. Well, the guy that says it hurt right at that time in the second set, he probably has a partial tear of supraspinatus. And the one who didn't have any pain until afterwards, that's probably tendonitis. So there are small ways to separate it out, but from an eMERGE perspective, that doesn't make a huge difference. All right. So in other words, we can't really make a definitive diagnosis of a full rotator cuff tear in the emergency department. And at the same time, we shouldn't be sending all these patients who we can't make a diagnosis clinically on for ultrasounds in the emergency department because they're quite unreliable as well. The older patient might have a chronic tear there. They've been walking around like that for years. And so the ultrasound might actually be misleading in, right. in that kind of case. Appreciate as well, a lot of the older patients, it's a very degenerative tear. Patients walk around all the time with normal functioning shoulders, like 70, 80-year-olds. And if anybody ultrasounded them, you'd see they have like complete rotator cuff tears bilaterally. And this is all just wear and tear over time. Do be careful of ultrasound. I'll tell you, make just one point about MSK ultrasound or a couple of points. Over the age of 40, almost everybody is going to have some sort of tendinopathy. It is rare to have a normal ultrasound in anybody over the, with or without symptoms, uh, number one. Number two, there's a great variety of quality of MSK ultrasound that's done diagnostically. So just make sure if you're sending them for diagnostic MSK ultrasound, they go to somewhere good to have that done. And who would know that? Your local orthopedic surgeons typically will tell you who does good MSK ultrasound. If the patient's over 60, it doesn't matter if they have a tear or not. Uh, the treatment isn't surgical. You know, if they're 50, active, maybe laborer, and you're worried. All right. So it would be a very rare situation where we would do an ultrasound in the emergency department or soon after an emergency visit for a patient that we suspect has a rotator cuff injury. I'd agree with that. The younger patient who you suspect a complete tear is one you consider, but not a, not through eMERGE. You don't have to do that in eMERGE. Uh, I still, though, I'll tell you, is take an X-ray of the shoulder. Don't, don't ever send somebody for an ultrasound of the shoulder without doing a plain film. So you may do the plain film and eMERGE and then delay the ultrasound until afterwards. But I think you'd be surprised sometimes what you can pick up on a plain film, not for a rotator cuff tear, but some other pathology that may actually be there. Good point. Now for a quick ad from our sponsors. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues at North York General so much easier. So Metricade created a serious paradigm shift in ED scheduling. I mean, your schedule should fit around your life plans and not the other way around. The Metricade system does a great job of balancing the needs of the department with your personal scheduling desires. And the need to trade shifts is dramatically reduced. You get the shifts you asked for. At North York General, we've seen a 90% reduction in the need to trade shifts. It's amazing. So you get more of the shifts you want and less of the ones you don't. You know, I have a complicated schedule with many restrictions, but despite this, most of the shifts I get are exactly the ones I've asked for, and I never get booked when I'm unavailable. So please check out metricade.com slash emcases to learn more about the Metricade system. It's been a real game changer for me and the North York ED folks I work with. 
So far on our list of occult shoulder injuries, we've covered glenohumeral subluxation and rotator cuff injuries. For our third occult injury, let's throw out a little case. So you've got a hockey player who comes in having the tip of his shoulder driven into the boards after being tripped, and he comes in complaining of pain at the distal end of the clavicle. This is a classic mechanism for an acromioclavicular separation. So AC separations are relatively straightforward injuries, usually, like this case, a fall onto the tip of the shoulder with the arm adducted, tucked into the side of the body, that is, with tenderness, with or without a bump at the AC joint. Now, I've always wondered why we even bother getting x-rays for patients who have an obvious, uncomplicated AC separation. Dr. Ciel, do we need to get x-rays for all these people? So I, I would argue that we should for a couple of reasons. One, you'll be surprised sometimes you might pick up distal clavicle fractures. So an AC separation is more common. A distal clavicle fracture you should just keep in mind. And because then sometimes if you see, go, oh, well, AC separation, we get in the mindset, I don't have to x-ray it. You may see a high riding, looks like a grade three AC separation. While well, that may be non-operative, so why take an x-ray? But if it's a displaced distal clavicle fracture, that's actually surgical. So therefore, the reason to do the x-ray is not to confirm the AC separation so much as it is, because you can do that clinically. The reason to do the x-ray is to make sure they don't have a distal clavicle fracture. And Dr. Dancer, I sometimes see when patients do go for x-rays for AC separations that the physician orders x-rays with and without weights. And I've seen it less and less as the years go by, but is there any situation where it would be necessary to order x-rays with and without weights for a patient with an AC separation? I would argue not. I mean, if it's that subtle that you can only pick it up by providing a weighted x-ray, it's not a high-grade AC separation, and it's not going to really affect your treatment decision anyway. So I wouldn't bother with the weights. I think that you should focus more on comparing against the opposite side. So you know, an isolated AC joint x-ray on a single side where it's more than subtle. If you're trying to grade that, uh, you pretty much need to know what the normal looks like on the opposite side in order to compare it. One misconception is just about the grading system in terms of what percent things are displaced. Uh, it has nothing to do with the width of the clavicle. It's actually the increase in the coracoclavicular distance. And that's the normal you can only measure on the opposite side. So no weights, yes, bilateral views. Okay, so let's get into the details actually of the measurement. So you're comparing to the opposite side. So mm. the difference in that space and the acromioclavicular space, what difference would be large enough that it might require surgery? I would say use 100% as your kind of go-to number. But if it's almost 100%, that's where it gets a bit controversial, right? So the grade threes, it's kind of like clavicle fractures where it's not all about the x-ray. So the grading system is about the x-ray, but surgical decision making is much more of a clinical evaluation. Okay. So from an eMERGE perspective, if it's about 100% increase increase in the distance between the A and the C. That could be surgical. That could be surgical. Okay. That's, that's good to know in terms of uh, counseling our patients. All right. So let's say you've diagnosed an AC separation and it's a pretty beefy one. How are you going to manage these patients in the emergency department? Right. So 
regardless of of even the grade, like there's a one, two, three, and rarely there's like four, five, six, which would be surgical. But that's typically we're going to see the vast majority are one, twos, and threes. A sling is all that they need, and I would actually advocate for that sling going on the patient before they go down to X-ray. Like the diagnosis is made, they're tender at their AC joint. Go put the sling on before they go down to X-ray. It just makes them feel better. You're taking the weight off right away. So clavicle fractures, AC separations, it's just a nice idea to sling them before you send them there for a picture. Great point. So in summary for the AC separations, first, they do need an X-ray. And the reason why is because you might be surprised by a fracture, distal clavicle fracture, for example. And if you suspect that they have a high-grade AC separation, so there's like a huge bump there, then those are the patients who should get bilateral x-rays done so that you can compare it to the other side because that'll help dictate whether they need surgery or not. And for those ones that have a big bump and you suspect a high grade and they get bilateral x-rays, a difference of 100% between sides in, in that gap, those are the patients that may require uh, surgery, that also other factors are taken into consideration, but those are the, certainly the patients that you want followed up and uh, put them in a sling even before they go to x-ray. Next on the list of occult shoulder injuries after glenohumeral subluxation, rotator cuff tear, and AC separation is the relatively rare and sometimes scary sternoclavicular dislocation. Now, there's two kinds of dislocations. There's anterior and posterior. The much more common one, thankfully, is the anterior dislocation that happens in sports and motor vehicle crashes, usually after a blow to the anterolateral shoulder, which then levers the clavicle to pop anteriorly from the sternum. Sometimes this can actually happen from a foosh. That's the anterior sternoclavicular dislocation. But let's talk about the scary one, and that's the posterior sternoclavicular dislocation, the one that should make you pay a lot of attention to what's behind the clavicle. First, what is the mechanism of injury that would make us suspect uh, that a patient might have a posterior sternoclavicular dislocation? So this is a high-energy injury, typically. It's a very stable joint, the sternoclavicular joint. And often it's somebody, let's say, in the bottom of a football pile or a rugby pile, they may be, you know, lying with their shoulder pointing up towards the sky and a force comes from behind and crunches them from behind. Most of the time that will fracture the clavicle. But sometimes if 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 the stars line up kind of the wrong way in a sense, it can actually cause a force where it's actually loaded down the clavicle. And then where, where does the force exit? At the end of the clavicle. And if the force is coming from behind, it levers the distal end of the clavicle posteriorly, which leads to this very worrisome posterior dislocation. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, just that the most common mechanism is actually a blow to the posterior lateral shoulder, not a direct blow to the medial clavicle, which would kind of make the most common sense. Oh, well, it's a posterior dislocation. It's from a blow to the medial clavicle. So I think that's just really important to think about when people say, oh, I got smashed in the shoulder. And like you were saying before, Dr. CL, that the examination of the shoulder should really start at the sternoclavicular joint for this exact reason. All right, so that's the mechanism of injury of a posterior sternoclavicular dislocation. Dr. Dancer, why are these injuries so easy to miss? So to to answer uh, why do we sometimes miss this injury, first of all, you know, when it's acute, it's painful, it's difficult to examine, maybe very swollen, can be difficult to tell. Is it prominent? Is it 
Is it recessed? Is it anterior? Is it posterior? The x-rays aren't the easiest to interpret. There's a lot of stuff in the way. And so that serendipity view can help to get some of the things that obscure the image out of the way, but it's still not an easy x-ray sometimes to interpret. One comment I would make about viewing that serendipity view, if you if you kind of exaggerated things and it, it wasn't just a 40-degree inclination, but it were even more extreme then on that view, an anterior dislocation, the clavicle would move superiorly, and at posterior dislocation, the clavicle would move inferiorly relative to how you're viewing the x-ray. Any question, get a CT. It's definitive. Like most of us know, this is uh, a scary injury, the posterior sternoclavicular dislocation. Dr. Ciel, what exactly is life-threatening about this injury? Just think of all the structures that are back there. So uh, what's back there is the subclavian vein, the meostymia of pneumothorax, esophageal rupture. All kinds of things can get injured. The trachea can get injured potentially. And some people would say that where that gets reduced is actually in the operating room with a thoracic surgeon in the room in case you need them. You had mentioned that sometimes it's really tough to tell just by looking because there's so much swelling and, and tenderness and pain whether it's anterior or posterior, are there any other clues that clinically that we can tell whether it's posterior or anterior? Sure. So other things, if it goes in the back, potentially you can get hoarseness, you can have difficulty swallowing, you can have shortness of breath. If it hits a brachial plexus, it affects a brachial plexus, you can have arm symptoms from it that are radicular. So there's a whole host of things that potentially can happen depending on what's been injured. Suffice to say, for the really bad ones that are actually hitting structures, look out for those other things like hoarseness and paresthesias and weakness in the arm and dysphagia and dyspnea and cyanosis and all of that. In the absence of those, though, it's it really is a very tough diagnosis, and really CT is going to be your answer there. In terms of the treatment of this, I mean, I have seen described reduction of a posterior sternoclavicular joint in the emergency department. But I personally would be pretty reluctant to do that. My understanding is that let's say that the clavicle is actually tamponading a vessel and then you reduce it and then suddenly the vessel blows and you're stuck in the emergency department with someone with a big vessel that's blown in their chest, that these really should be done in the operating room with thoracic surgery backup. What's your opinion in terms of how to manage these patients in the emergency department? For posterior dislocations, I think they're rare enough and serious enough that I don't think any orthopedic surgeon would fault you for asking for help. For anterior dislocations, I think that if it's an acute injury and it's a complete dislocation, you should try to reduce that closed in emergency. And if it stays, great. If it doesn't, it's rare that this would go on to any kind of surgical treatment. All right, so in our list of occult shoulder injuries, we've covered rotator cuff tears, glenohumeral subluxations, AC dislocations, and sternoclavicular dislocations. Last but not least is the occult clavicle fracture in kids. So Dr. CL, just briefly, can you tell us a bit about the kinds of cases that are missed and how we can make the diagnosis of an occult clavicle fracture in children? Well, I, I think the point being is it's the way the history and physical of how you make a diagnosis of any fracture. So, you know, if a if a child has a fall, their tender sore swollen mid clavicle, and it's not a direct injury, that's both a history and a physical exam that's consistent with a fracture. 
Most of the time, the x-ray will show it to you, but if it's undisplaced, if sometimes the, the fracture line may overlap with a rib, sometimes you just can't see the fracture. It's so microscopic. You can't see it on the initial x-ray. So it's just treating the patient clinically and just trusting your clinical judgment. You know, if the kid fell and had a direct trauma to the clavicle and the x-ray is negative, it's probably a soft tissue injury. But if it's an indirect force and they're tender mid-clavicle and you look at all the other clavicle fractures you've seen, trust your judgment and not the x-ray. At the end of the day, if you, if you missed a mid-clavicle fracture in a child, the treatment's not operative. The kid's arm hurts. They're not going to use it. And then if they got delayed by a week, no harm will come. But just, it's another way of just trying to hone your clinical skills. All right. So that's the uh, pediatric occult clavicle fracture. While we're on the topic of clavicle fractures, let's talk about the big-time clavicle fractures, the ones that you can see that are obvious on, on x-ray. This question seems to come up quite a lot, and I've heard so many different answers for this. What are the surgical indications for clavicle fractures? Mike McKee at St. Mike's did a randomized trial a few years back that asked this exact question. Uh, essentially, what it asked was, you know, which patients benefit from surgical treatment? And the paper out of St. Mike's was only in adults and dealt with mid-clavicle fractures. One of the criteria was more than two centimeters of shortening radiographically, but it wasn't the only criteria, and he has since published additional comment on this as well. There's a large clinical component to it as well. From the emergency department perspective, I would say it's fair to use two centimeters of displacement as a threshold for concern in terms of which ones may require surgical treatment. And then we would sort through those clinical features. You know, even with two centimeters of displacement, most wouldn't require surgical treatment. The other are the distal clavicle fractures. So in the last distal few centimeters of the, of the clavicle, and whether or not it's felt that the coracoclavicular ligaments are torn or not torn influences the non-union rate. And so many of these would require surgical treatment. So general rule is uh, two centimeters of displacement or shortening or some distal clavicle fractures are really the two big ones. And then, of course, if the skin is, is tenting and looks like it's about to pop out of the skin, that's another indication, yeah? Yeah, so a couple of the, the two centimeters of shortening and displacement that we're chatting about is adults mid-clavicle. So in kids, if you see that in a five-year-old or a six-year-old, that would be rare that it would ever be touched surgically. So we're talking about for adults or sometimes a 15 or 16-year-old whose growth plates are closing are adult-like. That's mid-clavicle fractures in adults is where the two centimeters comes in. Another little pearl about tenting the skin. So if you see tenting of the skin for an ankle fracture or a tib-fib, like reduce it to try to take the pressure off so they don't become secondarily opened. If you see it for a clavicle fracture, it's very hard to reduce it because it'll just go back because the muscle spasm will go back to where it is. So if you ever see it in Emerge, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. One suggestion, I, I actually I haven't heard this from an orthopedic surgeon, but it's just one of the things I've thought about in, in teaching the course so many times, is just do a surgical prep. Like the concern is it's infected. So do a surgical prep as if they were going to go to the OR, put some sterile gauze over top of it, put a sterile dressing over top of that. At least then if it does break through the skin, it's sterile on the other side of it. Sounds clever. Let's do a review of all the key points in this podcast and then finish off with Dr. Dancer and Dr. Cl giving their final words of wisdom. Proximal humerus fractures. What do we need to know? First, surgical outcomes are no better than conservative management for most proximal humerus fractures, 
but there is geographical variation in how aggressive surgeons are at operating on these fractures. So what are the surgical indications then? Well, without going into a list of indications, what we should be aware of is that there are three considerations when surgeons are thinking about operating. First, the near classification suggests that the more bone fragments, the more likely surgery will benefit the patient. Next, the more displaced the humeral head, the more likely avascular necrosis will result, and so the more likely they are to operate. And then finally, a head split fracture usually does require surgery. The last important point about proximal humerus fractures has to do with educating your patient about prognosis before they leave the ED. Patients should be made aware that about 90% of recovery from proximal humerus fractures occurs in the first three to four months, and that the remaining 10% takes six months or longer, much longer than other major joints in the body. So that's proximal humerus fractures. Next, we talked about which shoulder immobilization techniques should be used for which particular injuries. There are four ways to immobilize a shoulder. A simple sling, a valpo sling, or what we sometimes call a shoulder immobilizer, a collar and cuff, and a sugar tong splint. While the simple sling and the valpo sling take the weight of the arm off the shoulder, sugar tong splints and cuff and collar take advantage of the weight of the arm to pull on the shoulder. So with this in mind, sugar tong splints are used for displaced mid-humerus fractures to promote reduction of the fracture. Cuff and collar would be used for an impacted proximal humerus fracture, again, to take advantage of the weight of the arm to improve the position of the fracture. A simple sling is used for clavicle fractures to take the weight of the arm off and reduce strain on the fracture. And a valpo sling for an AC separation, again, to minimize strain on the injury and improve pain. All right. After immobilization techniques, we ran through the list of occult shoulder injuries to x-ray. So the list of shoulder injuries, which may have normal or near-normal appearing x-rays, are posterior shoulder dislocation, glenohumeral subluxation, rotator cuff tears, AC separation, sternoclavicular separation, and occult fractures in kids like a mid-clavicle fracture, for example. So going through these one by one, posterior shoulder dislocation we covered in depth in episode 135, and then next on the list is the glenohumeral subluxation. So the typical history of a glenohumeral subluxation is a young female patient who may or may not have a history of hypermobility reporting that they felt like their shoulder was moving out of place and then it popped back in. The apprehension test and relocation tests confirm the diagnosis of a sublux glenohumeral joint, the caveat being the patient who dislocated their glenohumeral joint recently where the test will almost for sure be a false positive. We'll have a video of the apprehension and relocation test in the show notes. Next on the list of occult shoulder injuries are the rotator cuff injuries, and it's really the acute rotator cuff tear in the young active patients that we need to think about, because some of them may require surgery. Now, there's no finding or combination of findings on history or physical that can accurately diagnose rotator cuff tear in the acute setting, so you may be tempted to order an ultrasound in the ED for those who you suspect might have an acute rotator cuff tear after a normal x-ray, of course. You need to understand, though, that the majority of patients over the age of 60 will have rotator cuff abnormalities found on ultrasound, and it's very rare that any of them will require surgery. 
many of them will have bilateral chronic rotator cuff tears. Also, the quality of ultrasound reporting is highly variable. There are many false positives. So what do we do with a young patient with a suspected acute rotator cuff tear in the ED? Well, our experts suggest referring to an orthopedic surgeon only young patients with a highly suspected acute rotator cuff tear and to confirm the diagnosis with an outpatient ultrasound at a place that has a good reputation for MSK ultrasound. Other patients with suspected rotator cuff tendinitis and older patients do not require orthopedic referral from the ED. They need physio and follow up with their primary care physician. Next on the list of sometimes occult shoulder injuries is the AC separation. Make sure you get bilateral views for a suspected AC separation because the grading system is based on the difference in the acromioclavicular distance of the normal side compared to the injured side. And a 100% difference in distance is the rough cutoff for the need for surgical intervention. Don't bother with x-rays with weights. They're painful and don't add any diagnostic utility beyond the clinical exam and the bilateral x-ray views. Put these folks with an AC separation in a sling before they go to x-ray and maintain them in a sling for home. Refer the ones with a 100% increase in AC distance compared to the normal side to orthopedics. So that's AC separations. Let's move approximately now to the SC or sternoclavicular separation. Mechanism first. Anterior sternoclavicular subluxation is usually the result of a direct blow to the anterolateral shoulder, while posterior SC subluxation is usually the result of a direct blow to the posterolateral shoulder, not a blow to the medial clavicle as you might think. And this is why the shoulder exam should start at the SC joint. Often there's so much swelling and tenderness at the SC joint that it's difficult to tell clinically if there's a separation. Some clues to the dreaded posterior dislocation are a hoarse voice, difficulty swallowing, shortness of breath, cyanosis, and weak or numb arm from a brachial plexus injury. Standard views are pretty crappy for picking up these injuries, so send them for a serendipity view. Even these are difficult to interpret, and many patients end up needing a CT, which is advised for posterior dislocation anyhow to assess for any injury to vital structures beneath. Anterior dislocations can be reduced in the ED with simple loading of the proximal clavicle and rarely require surgery, but posterior dislocations are best reserved for the OR with thoracics backup. So that's SC separation. The last occult injury we should think about in kids is the occult mid-clavicle fracture. If they look and feel like a clavicle fracture clinically, but you don't see it on x-ray, treat them as an occult clavicle fracture with a sling and follow-up. All right, the last thing we talked about was which adult patients with clavicle fractures should be referred for consideration of surgery, and the answer is, one, mid-clavicle fractures with displacement or shortening of two centimeters or more, two, distal clavicle fractures, three, clavicle fractures that cause the skin to tent. Now back to Dr. Dancer and Ciel giving you their final words of wisdom when it comes to shoulder injuries. All right, so before we wrap it up, Dr. Dancer, if there were two things that you wanted ED docs to know about shoulder injuries that maybe sometimes they don't know, what would those two things be? 
One would be that for most shoulder injuries, that if you immobilize longer than three weeks, you're looking at uh, substantial stiffness. And then that becomes the problem and can extend the recovery. The one exception, as we spoke about, where you deliberately want to uh, extend the immobilization out to three weeks may be in terms of recovering from a dislocation. Second thing would be, as we spoke about, the confusion around the biceps do call us about distal biceps ruptures. It's not an emergent problem if there's a proximal biceps rupture. And Dr. Ciel, if you could leave us with any words of wisdom that we haven't covered in the podcast yet. Well, I wouldn't say I haven't covered because I think I think you've done, as always, a great job. But I would say, again, just a little shout out for always think about posterior dislocations and just say, do you think the patient has it or not? And make sure you get, if you're, you're going to do x-rays, get good transcapular views. If you're in doubt, put that tool in your back pocket of an axillary review. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. That was, uh, of course, highly educational for me and I hope for the audience too. We'll see you back here maybe in, in another year when we do, uh, what haven't we done? Hips, maybe. It'll be our pleasure. Looking forward to it. Mm-hmm.